Okay, good evening, everyone. We are live and uh, we're very glad to be here. Uh, this is Rabbi Silver's class, one time class, one night only, Ruth, the daughter of Abraham. If you're joining us here on Zoom, we encourage you to accept the invitation to become a panelist. It won't obligate you to teach or do anything else, but it will allow you to share your video with us so we can see your wonderful face if you feel comfortable with that. And you'll also be able to unmute yourself if we have time for some discussion, question and answer. Uh, as always, you're welcome to put questions and comments into the chat here on Zoom. If you're joining us on Facebook Live, hello, good evening. Please feel free to put your questions and comments in the comments section directly below the video. And I'm happy to share them with Rabbi Silber and everyone else here. And if you're joining us on Drisha Live, we're glad that you're here learning with us. Without further ado, Rabbi Silber, please. Thank you, Noah. Um, okay, this was a last second decision to give a class on you I would, given the fact that um, Shavuot is coming up very soon, uh, so it's of course appropriate and it's always wonderful to look again at Miguel Ruth. It's one of those rare books that we have in our in our canon, which basically is all good. I mean, it's there's a, it's a beautiful book from beginning to end. There, of course, are issues which emerge from every book, but overall, it's all positive and uh, it's a book which has no villain. Uh, there are very exceptional people. And there's the normal average person. So that, for example, in chapter one, when uh, Naomi is headed back to the land and she's accompanied by her two daughters-in-law and Naomi says to them, why don't you go back to your, go back to your life, go back to Moab. And they both say, no, we're gonna go with you. Okay, then Naomi continues to encourage them to return and Arpa turns back. And Ruth cleaves unto her root of Kabbat. So Arpa's not bad. She, on the contrary, she takes up, she says, No, I insist on going with you to care for you. So we have to know me, uh, is very forceful and says, No, I insist, go back, you gotta do what's right for yourself. So Arpa turns back. And the same thing is true in the last chapter of the book, when somebody is to redeem, as it were, Ruth, and indirectly Naomi as well, it involves more or less what we call Yibom or Leverett marriage. It involves reclaiming a field of Naomi that had been, had been lost or will be lost. So there's the Boaz, the hero, who will do both. And there's the other fellow, the nameless Pony Almoni of chapter four. And Boaz uh, starts by saying, well, there's this field that, that Naomi had, Naomi's husband had, would you be willing to redeem the field? And the person says, yes, I will. It's only after Boaz says, if, but it's a, you know, there's another part to this. It means marrying Ruth as well, Ruth the Moabite, that he says, I can't do. But the initial impulse is to do the right thing once again. So he's not a bad person as it were, but he's not exceptional either. And what the book is about, as the Midrashim point out, it's about chesed, which means going beyond what's expected. And that's true of the three heroes in the book, which is Ruth, of course, Naomi, and Boaz as well. So it's one of those rare books. When you read the book of Breshid, for example, and I'm teaching in a different class, that's certainly not the case. The characters there are very complicated uh, and there are some bad guys there as well, but the book of Ruth is not so. 
So with this evening, I wanted to just to focus on one aspect of Megillat Rut. Of course, Megillat Rut, the story of Ruth herself, is seen by the Talmud and other sources as a paradigmatic example of someone who chooses to be Jewish. It's called Geirut, uh, conversion or choosing to be Jewish. And Ruth is the paradigmatic example. The Gemara in Sefer Yivamot, for example, talks about initially discouraging the convert, either discouraging because you want to make sure that the person knows what they're getting into, uh, you want to perhaps test the sincerity, et cetera. It's one possibility. And the example they give is from the first chapter of Ruth, when Naomi tries to talk her out of it. Ruth goes with her and Naomi says, listen, that's not the right thing. You have no future. Uh, no one's going to accept you. No one's going to marry you. Go back to your home, etc." Then she adds, and as for me, God has it out for me. So, or infamy, whichever term you use. And, you know, I am a kind of a cursed person. Why would you want to join with me? Uh, but nonetheless, Ruth uh, cleaves unto Naomi. When I told what Ruth's logic is, she simply says, where you go, I will go. Uh, it's interesting that the very famous Midrash, which is appended or connected to the Yuhad Ruth, is the Midrash of Elisha ben Avuyeh and Rabbi Meir. And there it's very interesting that there it's Rabbi Meir, one might say, clings to or cleaves to or defends or protects Elisha ben Avuya, probably is related to this, this theme of the one who insists on the personal connection, uh, the affinity, the personal obligation, uh, trumping all kinds of other considerations. In any event, uh, the Book of Ruth, in short, is a book in which uh, at least the Talmud speaks of one choosing to be Jewish. And the father of all converts, the father of all converts, perhaps the mother of all converts, the father of all converts is, of course, seen always as Abraham, who is called in the Torah of Hamon Goyim. He will be the father of many nations when his name is changed in chapter 17 of Breshis from Avram to Abraham, Avamon Goyim Netaticha. And he's one who in his own life, the life of Abraham, has many connections, not just to his own family, but to the people around him. Honor Eshkel Mamre are his confederates. He deals with B'nai Chait. Avram is one who has a very big picture of the world. And it's for that reason that the uh, rabbinic sources often cite Abraham as the father of all, of all converts. So I thought this evening we would take a look at Ruth as Abraham's spiritual daughter and uh, how the story of Ruth, one element of the story, plays off Sefer Breshit. Uh, I would say it plays off Sefer Breshit in two very different ways, and I hope we'll get to that uh, argument I, I'd like to make. Before we get to that, let me just begin by saying that the book of Ruth, the way it's framed, is connected to uh, the idea of, uh, of uh, kingship. That is, I think, fairly obvious, but I'll make the point anyway. Not only does the book of Ruth end with the genealogy of, of King David, and starting from the son of Judah, Peretz, and moving on through, uh, through uh, Boaz to Yishai and then to, uh, 
to David ultimately, then the book ends. The last verse of the book is Yeshai Hawid at David. So it traces the genealogy of King David, which that's the way the book ends. Endings are very significant. But not only that, the book begins with the book begins, the setting of the book is of course, time of the judges, the time of the Shoftim, the book of Shoftim is the book that precedes the book of Shmuel. The book of Shmuel is all about kingship, the kingship and the problematics of kingship. And the book of Shoftim is about a time when there is no king. In fact, the last five chapters of the book of Shoftim speak about the absence of the king. In those days, is the last verse of the book of Judges. And the last two stories of the book of Judges are about civil war, about anarchy. And the claim the book makes in the last five chapters, and sort of the epilogue to Sefer Shoftim, is that kingship is certainly necessary if only to avoid anarchy. It may go beyond that, but certainly without some kind of central leadership, people will do whatever they want. When people do whatever they want, it leads to all kinds of bad results, including the last story of the book of Shoftim, which is civil war. So you have a book, this little book of Ruth, which begins with the time of the Shoftim, and ends with the chronology of King David. So it's fair to say that the book of Ruth uh, is related to, speaks to the idea of the emergence of, 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 of kingship. And given the fact that we conclude the book with the genealogy of David, I think it's fair to say that, I think it's true in general of the Bible, that the Bible does not oppose kingship. Having said that, the Bible and the book of Shmuel, for sure, which does not oppose kingship, but the book of Shmuel makes very clear in a whole variety of ways that kingship is, is if not forbidden, maybe even we need it, but it certainly has a very dangerous side to it because it's about people having virtually unlimited power, and that leads always to bad results. Book of Ruth, on the other hand, as I started to introduce the book, it's all positive, it's all positive energy. It's hard to find too many other stories like this in the Bible. The one that comes to mind is actually the story of Abraham sending his servant to find the wife for Yitzchak, that chapter. That Pasha Chai Sarah, that's all positive actually is. Yeah, you have love on, you have this, but the chapter is very positive. So anyway, the book of Ruth seems to suggest A, that kingship is positive, and I would argue, it seems to suggest that the characters in the book of Ruth, Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz, those characters, Boaz, of course, being a forebearer of David, that the behavior they exhibit in the book of Ruth is what is necessary for kingship to be uh, a, a positive institution and to work for everybody's benefit. That I think is the subtext of Migirat Ruth. Okay, so I didn't want to, this evening, just make two main points about uh, the book of Ruth and the book of Breshit with a one focus would be Abraham and then a second focus as well. But before I, I start that, uh, does anybody have a comment before we um, launch into this uh, 
Shear about Ruth Avraham and a related story in the book of Breshit. Someone has a comment now, speak up. And we're, if not, we'll just continue, either in the chat or on mute. I, I just have one, one, one question. Um, just, uh, are, you, are you saying that then kind of the unlimited power can only be balanced by unmitigated chesed? Is that what you're I think that, I didn't say you? that, that's, that's your formulation and it's a very beautiful formulation. So I think I'll give you the credit for that. But I was saying that a sense of, I think, yes, I would say chesed. I think what's striking about the first chapter, you know, I'll tell you something, when my, before I got married, my father, who was exemplary, but never really directly gave me advice. He's, he's, he lived a certain way and he was an exemplar. He always said two things to me. I, re, I remember him saying, but this, one of them was, Whenever you have a big word or a small word, always use the small word. He was a great speaker, but use, keep it, use the small words. I'll get to the big words. The other thing was before I got married, think of the other person first. That was his advice. And that is exactly the story of chapter one. Because each one, the beginning like Ruth, Naomi it says to Ruth, this is what's best for you. Forget me, do what's best for yourself. You got to go home. You got to get a family that won't accept you. I'm too old. God doesn't like me. And Ruth says the opposite. I'm going to be with you no matter what you say. I'm going to take, I'm going to go out in the fields. I don't care. Yes, I'm a Moabite. I don't care. And I think the idea of thinking of the other person first is necessary because the kings, people with power, spend a lot of their time thinking about how can I stay in power? That's when they get in trouble. And it's true of David and Bathsheba, he sort of forgets his job. He forgets about prosecuting a war, fighting Israel's enemies. He's busy with his own personal problem and that sort of overshadows his, his you know, his, under, or, or prevents him from fully grasping the fact that he, he has a task, which is to serve others. I would say yes. I would say in that sense, I think your formulation is, is very beautiful. And that is, yeah, the idea of thinking of the other first is an antidote to the dangers of kingship, which is thinking of myself first, because retaining the power that I, that, you know, and that power can actually have many negative, uh, negative sides to it, negative uh, effects. One of them is you, you can't actually see properly. You, you can't recognize the other person. So the book of Ruth, which is, you know, I think it's, uh, it's one of my favorite books. I find it very beautiful and very inspirational book. I think that is a good formulation, yeah. Anybody else have something to add? If not, we just we'll continue, and you can speak up at any time or, or chat. And you know, we'd like to hear from anybody who has a comment or question or or an insight. Please uh, speak up. Let me just get to the first piece of this. We called it um, uh, Abraham and Ruth. Well, I would say Ruth as the spiritual child of Abraham, and actually. If you look for a moment at the second chapter of Ruth, you had Ruth, that is. So Ruth has gone out into the field to provide food for, to bring back food for Naomi. Naomi is a widow. Uh, we don't know yet that she once had a field that is either on the market or has been sold, but we know she's a, she's a widow, as is Ruth, but she's old, an older person and Ruth is young. So Ruth volunteers to go out to the field and to bring back the food. 
she doesn't know the customs, the mores of, of the land. She doesn't know that actually there's an obligation to leave a part of your field for the, uh, for the poor. She says, let me go to the field. Maybe I'll find favor with somebody. And it just so happens, says the Megillah, that she comes upon the field of, of a Boaz. Is it, a, is, it a, is it by chance? Is this God's work? It's a good question. But in any event, that's where she ends up. And Boaz himself, another hero, has come returned from Beit Lechem. And he blesses the people. And they bless him back. That's in verse number, uh, was it four or five? I can't even see. Verse four. And then Boaz asked the question, who is that young woman over here? To whom does she? Where's she coming from? Maybe recognizing she looks different. She's a Moabite woman. And the, the young man says, oh, she's been here from the morning. She's the one that came back with uh, Naomi, with Naomi. And she said, let me gather in the field. And she's been here working in the field almost the whole time. She hasn't really rested very much. And now Boaz says to Ruth in the eighth pasuk, and he goes on, you stay in the field here. I've commanded the boys not to bother you, right? Young girl by herself, not an old person and a bunch of guys around. I've commanded them not to touch you, not to bother you. And you can go and take the food. And she falls down to the ground. She bows down. Why are you so kind to me? I'm a stranger. Boaz says to her, here's the reason. And this is important for our purposes. This is the 11th Pasuk of chapter 2. Boaz says, the reason is, I know all about the fact, how you, what you've done for your mother-in-law after her husband died, uh, after your husband died, and um, how you abandoned, but you left your mother and your father and the land of your moledet behind, and you went to a place of which you knew not formally. And that expression, when you read that pasuk, that reminds, of course, of God's command to Abraham in the beginning of Parshat Lechucha, Lechucha mi'artzucha mi'moladetcha mi'beitovicha ela aretz asher arekha. So Abraham is commanded to leave his home, his, his father's house, his moledet, moladetcha, and to go to a place that I will show you. It's not a place that you know of, but it's a place that I will show you. And that itself, when you read that pasuk, that itself immediately marks Ruth as one who is like Abraham. And before I get to the main point I want to make about being like Abraham, several points, uh, I want to point out something else about Boaz, which is Ruth says, why are you being so nice to me? I'm a stranger, I'm a foreigner, and you've taken an interest in me. Rocky, recognize me. Oh, I know all about you, says Boaz, how you left your home and your mother-in-law and you're a widow, and et cetera, and you care for her and God should give you a blessing. What's curious is, Boaz asked the Nar, who is this girl, he says. Oh, this is the one that came back with Naomi and, he, and she's been gathering food. But the point is when 
he didn't say to, this is the one who came back with Naomi, but when Boaz speaks to Ruth, it sounds like he knows the whole story. Oh, I know all about you, how you came, how you left, right? After, after your husband died. How, how does he know her husband died? Right? Your husband is done. He seems to know more than the Nar told him. And if you think about it, it's not that surprising because in chapter one, when Naomi returns back from Moab, says the whole city was a buzz. So that people were talking about the fact that Naomi, who had left earlier with a husband, two children, comes back with not with neither. So it sounds like Boaz knows about this even before the Nari identifies Ruth as this particular woman. And the reason I emphasize that is that if Boaz knows about her beforehand, if we presume he knows about her beforehand, then one can raise the question, well, if he knows about her beforehand, and it turns out he's related to her. That's how chapter two begins. He's related to, to Elimelech, is Boaz. He's a relative. How close exactly, we don't know, but he's related for sure. Then one can ask the question, and let's keep that in the back of our minds. Well, if he knows all about this poor widow returning from, uh, from Moab, and he is related to this person, so why is he waiting for Ruth to show up in his field? Why doesn't he actually proactively go to Naomi and say, let me help you? The whole city's talking about her, but he doesn't. That's interesting. He doesn't act. He is certainly a, a very good person, but he's not acting. And it seems like he knows the story before she happens to show up. Once she shows up, then he's very kind. And he says, may God reward you. And we'll come back to that pasuk about may God reward you. Now, before I, I get back to that pasuk, I want to make a different point about Ruth and Abraham. Abraham, let me make, let me start with a different point, actually. There's a lot of different points here. I recently wrote a book about Sefer Shmuel. It's in Hebrew, it's called Malchut Adam. It has, in my view, I'm prejudiced, many, many, many interesting readings in the book of Shmuel. What is in particular interesting is that the character of Avraham and the character of David have much in common in the book of Shmuel. I can't get into all the details here, but let me mention one pasuk in the book of Shmuel, the chapter in which God says to David, I'm going to establish your kingship. The line of David will be the kingship for Israel. It's chapter seven of Shmuel Bet. It's when, it's when David says to the prophet, I want to build the temple. After all, I live in a house of cedars and God lives behind a bunch of curtains. And the prophet says, sounds like a great idea, go do it. And God says to Natan Navi, tell him not to do it. I'll tell him when to do it. He's not going to do it. His son will do it. But in the context of that story, in the beginning of chapter seven, after David offers to build the Mikdash, and God says, go back and tell him, Kotomar, it's in verse number eight of chapter seven. Kotomar, we have deal with David, Kotomar Hashem Tzvaot. Says the following, I took you from the, from the, from the, from the field, says God, right? From, for, as if you were a shepherd. And I took you, I took you to be a prince, the prince of my people. And 
ועשיתי לך שם גדול, כשם הגדולים אשר בארץ. And that's a very interesting passage. I took you from the field, God says to David, and I made for you a great name, like the name of the great ones, the greatest ones on earth. And that expression, I gave you a great name, of course, is the very beginning of our, we meet Abraham. The idea of being a great nation and having a great name is an Abraham description, actually, and description of David as well. And then many other links, interesting ones, between Abraham and David. And let me just comment about why the Book of Shmuel makes that connection, what they have in common. And among other things, what they have in common is that the story of Abraham, which is the story of Breshit, is the story of the patriarchy and the matriarchy. But it's the idea of passing on a covenantal blessing from one generation to the next. In the promise made to Abraham, God spoke of four generations, three generations of suffering and a four generation of return. Of, of return. And the book of Breshit has four generations as well. Is Abraham, he's the first generation. Yitzhak is two, Yaakov is three. And then Yaakov's children, Israel, B'nai Israel are the fourth generation. So the story of Breshit, as it were, among other things, is a reflection of the promise that this blessing will be passed down from one generation to the next. Now, the passing down of the blessing from one generation to the next is not a simple matter. At every stage, there's conflict, there's questions, etc. And what kinship is about is exactly this point, because the idea of kinship is an institution in which the power is passed down from one generation to the next, typically from father to son. When it comes to David, this issue of can David transfer the kingship to the next generation is an issue that preoccupies Shmuel Bet. It's not so simple. His eldest son is murdered. His next and the best there, Avshalom, is the one that killed the eldest son. He himself is killed. Adonia gets killed later. The child born to Bathsheba, the first one dies. So it's not a simple matter. So the issue of passing down a blessing from one generation to the next, which is maybe the core theme of Sefer Breshit, if not the core, it's one of the two cores. And the book of Shmuel, the great book of Shmuel, sees that story of Abraham as a very fine paradigm for the idea of passing something down from one generation to the next, as well as the great difficulties in doing so. Now, there's much more to this in Sefer Shmuel, but we're not studying Shmuel, which is about kingship, as is Megillat Rut. So here, it's interesting. So we have over here, the that's the connection to the kingship. And of course, the Book of Ruth is about kingship. But in terms of the character of Abraham, the positive qualities of Abraham in the Book of Breshit, if we're forced to say, Avram's two great qualities in Sefer Breshit. I would say the two great qualities in the Abraham cycle, in the Abraham story, are first of all, his ability, his willingness to leave the past behind, to have trust or faith in God, and to go to a place that he doesn't know. That's the Lechacha of chapter 12, the first communication of God to Abraham, and that's the Lechacha of chapter 22, the Akedah, it's the same language. Go to the place that Omari Lecha. 
And in the first instance, lech lecha and go to the place Asher Arecha. So that's one of his great qualities. And Avraham's, that's one great quality. The second great quality of Abraham that he's known for, and it appears in the text of the Torah, is his kindness to the stranger. What they speak about, hachnosat orchim. Um, that's Abraham's quality. Abraham is standing by the door of his tent, and he welcomes these strangers to his house, and he runs all over the place. And he's going to feed them and care for them and greets them with great uh, respect, etc. So this is the other quality of Abraham. We have to pick out the two qualities, I would say. One is the quality of willingness to leave your place. And the other quality is the quality of hospitality or kindness to the stranger. And by the way, uh, I speak of Ruth as Abraham's spiritual child, which she most certainly is. And of course she has these two qualities. But what's interesting is, that the two qualities of Abraham factor in in a different story, also in the book of Breshit, our foundational book. And that's the story in which Abraham commands his servant, Evid Abraham, to find a wife for Yitzchak. If you remember, the servant says to Abraham, maybe I'll find this wonderful person, wonderful woman, but she won't want to leave her home. She wants to stay there. Maybe she says, I'll marry Yitzchak, but he has to come to me. What should I do in such a case? And says Avram, God forbid. No, that cannot happen. Then Avram adds, the God who took me from my home and brought me here, that God is going to help you. If the woman refuses, don't send him back. So the, the, the quality that Avram is looking for in Yitzchak's spouse is exactly the quality of Lechacha. And if you remember the story of Rivka, at the end of the day, the family wants to hold on to her and they say, let's ask her what she wants. She's a very young girl. Will you go with this man? She says at the end of chapter 24. So that was the test. Now let's say you're the servant of Abraham. Okay, you want to find a woman who's willing to leave her home. And also the family has to let her go, of course. How do you find such a person? You're the servant of Abraham. The servant of Avram, great. But how do you find this person? So what the servant of Avram does, in my opinion, is the following. He says to himself the following. Avram has two great qualities. One is the willingness to leave his home. That's one quality. And the second quality is hospitality towards the stranger. I'm not going not to knock on every door to find out if, if you have a daughter willing to leave her home but I'll do something else. I'll set up a test for hospitality for the stranger. I'll come with my cameras, I'll ask for water, and let's see the one who's willing to go the extra mile, or maybe in this case, the extra 100 miles, and feed not just one human being, but 10 camels, 10 camels that they can drink. And because if she has that quality of the kindness, of the chesed, of the hospitality, then maybe she has the other quality of, of, of Abraham, which is the quality of, of, of Lechuchah. That's the servant's thinking. And of course, in that chapter, beautiful chapter, it all turns out to be true. Of course, he has the quality of, of hospitality. It's when he actually gives her the ring. And then, of course, he's quite certain that God has answered his prayers. At the end of the day, she'll be willing to leave. And the family wants to hold on to her. And the family says at the end of chapter 24, let's ask her. Let's ask this little girl what she wants. Nishalai Pia. Probably thinking she'd be afraid to leave home. Will you go with this man? 
I mean, I think that the perceptive reader has a sense in the very beginning of the chapter that it's going to come down to Rivka saying Eilech. And those are the two qualities. So Rivka is the spiritual child of Abraham. There's more to say about that. And the other spiritual child of Abraham is, of course, Ruth. And Ruth has these two qualities as well. She, of course, leaves her home. And she leaves her home despite the fact that someone's trying to dissuade her from leaving her home. She's on a different level, this woman. Naomi says, do not come with me. It's not a good thing for you to do. There's no future for you. Says Ruth, it doesn't matter. Makes no difference. I'm going to go with you. Life and death, I'm going to go with you. By the way, as I'm talking, I'm thinking about Sefer Shmuel again. And this story, this is a very good point. This story of someone saying to somebody else, do not come with me because it's not the right thing for you. You have to think about yourself, your family, your responsibility. Do not come with me, which we find in the book of Ruth. We have this actually in the book of Shmuel. Let me see if I can find this. The story in the book of Shmuel is when David, when David is exiled, David is exiled by his son Absalom. Absalom marches toward, marches <clears throat> towards and takes Jerusalem, and David is on the run. And David, uh, this is found in chapter 15 of Shmuel Bet. Let me see if I can find this. And David basically, one of the great chapters of the Bible, but in any event, uh, at first David gives up completely, and then um, and then uh, he gradually he begins to think, maybe I can become, maybe I can return to Jerusalem. And now we have a little story in Second Samuel chapter fifteen. I don't want to dwell on this too much. In verse number eighteen. All David's men, his, his palace guard, and 600 Gitim from Gat also are coming with him, marching with him into exile. Verse number 19. And the king said to Itai, as the leader of the Gitim, Gat is one of the cities of, of the Philistines. Why are you coming with us? Why do you go back to the king? The translator puts new, but the word new is not in the, in the word. Go back to the king. He means Avshalom. Go back to the king. You are a foreigner and an exile from your land, says David. Listen, he says, you're already in exile. You know what it means to be in exile. You're going to go in exile again? And not only that, you're a foreigner, which means two things. Number one, it's not your fight. It's nothing to do with you. You don't have to get involved here. You're a foreigner. It's between me and my son. It's a, it's a civil war. Nothing to do with you. And he, I, I believe there's an additional significance. You're a foreigner means you're not a threat to the king. What did the Torah say about the king? So you're safe to go back to him because you can never become the king. So it's safe for you to return. You know what it means to be in exile. Do what's best for yourself. And you got 600 people with you. That's what David says. Don't think about me. You think about your, your situation. 
one of the great moments of David. And what does Itai say? And then David continues, you came over yesterday. I'm going to cause you to leave. I'm going where I'm going. I'm going, I have no future, he says. It's like Naomi talking. I have no future. Do what's right for yourself and your people. And Itai, the Gittite, says to David, I swear by God, he takes an oath in God's name, and I swear by my Lord, the King, by you are my King. I will be with you in life or death. You have a feeling that whoever wrote the book of Ruth, and it's a much later book of the Bible, even though it doesn't feel that way, it is. The academics say it's much later, and I believe it because some of the language. I wonder if the writer of this book had the second book of Samuel chapter 15 open, because it's exactly the story of Ruth and Naomi up to this, up to the oath. Ruth takes an oath in chapter one, I'm staying with you, in God's name, I'm staying with you, for death or for life. It's exactly the story of Itai the Gittite, who by the way, when David fights Avshalom, he has three generals. There's Yoav, his brother, and Itai is the third. This is a great warrior we're talking about. But David's not thinking about himself. He's thinking about the other guy. So that's another excellent connection between the book of Shmuel, which is about kingship. Coming back to our first point about kingship, that the book of Ruth is also about kingship from a different perspective, the qualities that make for a great king. Anyway. So this is the story of Ruth. Ruth has the two qualities of Abraham, but there's actually something else. And um, there's something else here very interesting. I'll just make this point and then I will take comments or questions and we'll see if we can get to part two. Um, story of Abraham has two foils. No, a foil is a, a character that's similar to you, but is different. And the foil, and you have the other character, it, it enables the student, enables us to look at our character and to understand our character much more deeply. In the Abraham narrative, let's say, which begins, starts at the end of chapter 11, chapter 12, and runs through the beginning of 25, if you had to pick out two people that are foils for Abraham, similar but different, I believe there are two in the Abraham narrative. One, is the king of the Philistines, Abimelech, who appears in two stories. At first, Avram stays with Abimelech, even talks like Abimelech, and then later on, he, he leaves Abimelech. He, he departs from Abimelech. So he's like Abimelech in the beginning, without getting into all the details, but he, 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 but he moves away from Abimelech at the end of chapter 21, and actually even in the Akkadians, moving away from Abimelech. That's one foil in the Abraham narrative. And the other foil of the Abraham narrative is similar to Abraham, but ends up in a very different place. They start off very similar, but they're different. And of course, that is Lot. Lot is like Abraham. Lot goes with Abraham. By he told Lot at the very beginning, one gets the sense in studying the story of Abraham that Lot is even his, 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 his heir because Abraham has none of his own children, but he has a nephew. Haran is... Avram's brother died, and it sounds like Avram sort of adopts Lot, or Lot adopts Avram, and they're traveling together. And they act in very similar fashion. Avram cho chooses to go to Mitzrayim, Lot chooses to go to Sodom, which is similar. But as we read the story of Avram and Lot, 
they separate in chapter 13, and each one goes to a different place. Lot basically ends up in Sodom with his two daughters, and Avram goes, stays in the land of Canaan. Lot is the father of Ammon and Moab, and Avram is the father of the Jewish people. So Lot is, one might say, in looking at Lot, one sees the parallels to Avram on one hand, and one sees the differences on the other. The book of Shmuel, I can't get into this now, it's one of the key points of my book. Yeah, there are several. But the claim I make is that the Avram story in Shmuel, actually, which is, which is noted on many occasions, but one of them is Avimelech, because David and the Philistines have a very complicated relationship. He's unlike the Philistines on one hand, but he's very like them on the other. And he actually lives amongst them. So that's a very, very interesting uh, idea, which is, I think, one has to study the book of Shmuel to see it clearly. At the end of the day, David breaks from the Philistines, but it's very complicated. But in the book of Ruth, it's actually Lot. If we think about this, how Lot figures in the book of Ruth, because Lot is like Avram. Lot is somebody who uh, does welcome in strangers, right? Strangers come to his house in chapter 19, the angels of God, the messengers of God, checking out Sodom. Nobody will take them into the house except for Lot. So Lot is like Abraham in that way. But then there are differences between the hospitality of Lot and the hospitality of, of Abraham. The main difference being that Lot operates alone. There's nobody else who comes to his help, not his wife, not his children, his sons and will laugh at him, etc. And then Lot offers his daughters to the people of Sodom, which means that on a certain level, he's more like Sodom than he is like Abraham. So that's problematic as well. And then, in the in the um, when Lot is rescued from Sodom, if you remember in chapter nineteen, the angels say to Lot, "Run to the mountain, run to the mountain." And Lot says to the angels, "I can't do it. I'm too tired. I'm afraid to go." Pentidbokani Vamati, lest death cleave to me and I die. So Lot does not go back to the mountain which means back to the land of Canaan, back to Abraham. He stays in the cave. It's where his daughters sleep with him, etc. Pentidbokani hara vamati. If you think about, that's the Lot of Sefer Breshi. Then we have the descendants of Lot, Ammon and Moab. And Ammon and Moab in the book of Dvarim are precluded from joining the Jewish people. And the Torah gives two reasons why. Why Ammon and Moab cannot be included amongst the Jewish people. Two different reasons. Number one, because when you left the land of Egypt, they didn't, right? They didn't come and greet you with, uh, with bread and water. When you left the land of Egypt and you were struggling along the way, that's one reason. And the second reason is, the second reason is, that's reason number one. And the second is, and The second reason, they hired Bilam to curse you. And the Torah continues, and God says, but I didn't permit them to curse you. In the next verse, I didn't, Never seek their welfare, ever. So that's Lot's descendants. 
That's Lostas. Now we have the story of Ruth. What are the qualities of Ruth? What emerges from the book? It's a very beautiful book. First of all, this is somebody who is willing to leave her home. And even though Naomi says, do not come back with me, she goes with Naomi back to back, back to Beit and back to the Holy Land. That's number one. The opposite of Lot. In fact, the book of Ruth even plays with what Lot said. Because what did Lot say? I cannot go back to the mountain, said Lot. Pentidbokani haravamati. Less death tidbokani cleave unto me. And what did the book of Ruth say about Ruth? Baruta dove kaba. Ruth cleaved unto Naomi. And Ruth says, will you die, I will die. She's not concerned about the death. Okay, you die, that's why I'm dying. So both the verse, the expression, right? And then you have the descendants of Lot. And of course, Ruth is the opposite. Chapter two, she goes out and she brings back the food to Naomi. It's exactly the opposite of Amun and Moab. And not only that, there's something else interesting about the book of Ruth generally, the whole book of Ruth, which is, if you look at the book of Ruth, and we can't go through it now, but before, before Shulot, it's a nice thing to look at. It's a book that is filled with blessings. The first time you meet Boaz, the word Baruch comes up over and over again, right? Boaz meets the Nar, right? What does Boaz say to the Nar in chapter two of Ruth? Says, um, Let's find that, Ruth chapter two. Where are you, Ruth chapter two? Hold on, yeah. So it's, uh, let's see. Boaz comes back from Beit Lechem. Hashem imochem. May God be with you, that's a blessing. May God bless you. Boaz says, Naomi says to, 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 to uh, Ruth, when she comes back with the food, Baruch Hu Hashem. It's a book that is replete with blessings, as if it were that Ruth's behavior actually is connected to blessing at every turn. She brings blessing, Boaz blesses Ruth, Boaz uh, blesses, uh, Naomi blesses Boaz through Ruth. This is a person, wherever she goes, and this book is replete with the blessings. And the point of the book, I think, is when we say Ruth is like Abraham, it's in two different ways. First of all, she's directly like Abraham. She has his two main qualities. But not only that, the book goes out of its way to distinguish Ruth from Lot and Lot's descendants. Because Lot, of course, the foil of Abraham, he's the one who doesn't go to the mountain unless death cleave unto him. And his descendants, so it makes Ruth a Abraham figure in both ways, and both he's like Abraham, she's like Abraham on one hand, and she's unlike his foil on the other, right? She's the opposite of his foil, which means she's like Abraham. And it's for this reason that actually, as far as this book is concerned, Ruth must be accepted as a as a uh, as a Jew. The Gemara has an issue with the Pasuk, but the Torah said the Torah says you can't accept Ammon and Moab. Yes, it's only, only the men and not the women and all that. That's the Gemara's Terutzim. But the fact of the matter is, when you read this book, it's a very simple point. And that is, how can we, how can the Jews, Jewish people accept Ruth? The answer is simple. How can we not accept her? 
That's the point of the book. What do you mean you don't accept her? She's more Jewish than the Jews. She's Abraham's spiritual daughter in, in both in terms of the positive side. And she's also the, the anti-Moab and Ammon person. You can't accept them because of X. What about somebody who's the opposite of them? That's the shot of the book. The Gemara tries to work with halachic categories, how, how can we justify halachically, et cetera. The book doesn't know from that at all. When you read the book, not in the book at all. The book has a very simple solution. She's like Avraham, of course she's Jewish. What's the question? There's no question. She's the, she's the greatest Jew who ever lived. I mean, it's, it's exactly but the point. And so that's- Rabbi Sitter? Yes. I was just thinking like Boaz, he's somewhat of a narrator. He's not knowing necessarily he's the suitor, but he's saying the future, maskaratech is shlema, almost like getting to the to the punchline of shlomo. Like he's he's saying all these things, but he's he's a bit of a narrator, almost like Eliezer going to get the wife, but protecting her and leading her. Well, that may be true, but I don't think that he's aware of that. So I, I, I have a different take on it. And let me just... Um... You only have a few more minutes, unfortunately. Let me just, let me make two points over here. First of all, I think the point of the story, the book of Ruth, there are two main stories in the book of Ruth. Let me just lay it out there. I won't have time to fully explain it. If you think about Avram, so Avram is the one to whom God speaks. And God says to Avram, I'm going to make you a promise. I'm going to establish a, a, a bridge, a covenant with you and your descendants. And the covenant is that you will have a child and some of your children will enter into the divine covenant, covenant with God. And Avram says to God, what are the terms? What are the terms of this covenant? What do we have to do? It's a two-sided covenant. What's our responsibility? To which God says to Avram, no, that this involves a great commitment, three generations of suffering gain with Abdul Inui, and the fourth generation shall return to the land. And that in a nutshell is one might say a picture of what the rest of the book of Breshit's about. It's about Avram Yitzhak and Yaakov, it's about the fourth generation of Bnei Israel, and the fourth generation, the first three generations is about choosing one person and not the other. And when you get to Yaakov's children, everybody's got to be included. And we have to find some way in the Chumash to include everybody. And it's not simple because of the internal dispute, Yosef, etc. That's the way it works. And in the book of Breshit, actually, one of the questions is, can you actually build some kind of a structure which everybody is actually included? From the very beginning of Breshit, one gets the sense it's not going to be simple. The first set of brothers, one kills the other. The families of Abraham and Yitzhak and Yaakov have internal uh, dissension. And the story of Yosef is not just dissension, they actually try to kill Yosef and he ends up being uh, in the land of Egypt. And in the book of Reshit, the chapter in which it becomes clear of how can one, if it's possible, how can one actually build an inclusive structure? The key, from that standpoint, the plot of the book, the key chapter in the book is Genesis chapter 38, the story of Yehuda and, uh, and uh, Tamar. Because it's Tamar who teaches Yehuda how one can in fact build a house. It's the first time you actually have a family 
in chapter 38 of Breshit, in which both of the sons are going to be included. And that's because in the story of Judah and Tamar, which the Book of Ruth plays off in spades, that's the other main story in the Book of Ruth, in that particular story, and this is a very important point, Tamar has lost two husbands, Judah has lost two sons. So what Tamar does is she maneuvers to sleep with Yehuda. He doesn't know who she is, but she knows who he is. And she's expecting twins. And the twins are the perfect ending to the story because she's lost two husbands and he's lost two sons. So each of the twins is going to replace one of the sons. So by definition, you can't exclude either one. It's the first time actually that you can have a family of two siblings, two male siblings, that both will be included. And in that story, what Yehuda has to do to make it work is two things. First of all, he can't deny the fact that he's the father. He has to, he has to accept it. He has to, one might say, confess. So there are two things. There's the taking of responsibility, which means, yes, this is my seal. This is my staff. This is my coat. And he has to confess and say, she's right and I was wrong. So taking responsibility and confession, which is what Tamar gets Judah to do, makes it possible in chapter 38 to create a family in which both siblings are actually included. And Yehuda then later in Sefer Breshit does exactly the same thing to bring the whole family together. He both confesses later before Joseph, doesn't know it's Joseph, and then he, he takes responsibility. I am, I'm, I'm, I'm the guarantor, I'm the RA. So Tamar has taught Yehuda uh, how to, to exercise leadership, actually. He becomes the king. He gets back his staff and seal, symbols of kingship. It's through confession. It's through taking responsibility. And the story of Yehuda and Tamar, of course, is the story that lie, lies behind the Book of Ruth. Um, the Book of Ruth, of course, where the book ends, it doesn't just end with King David. Ewa told those Peretz. Peretz is the son of Judah. Peretz is one of the two sons born to Judah and Tamar. And in fact, the women at the end of the Book of Ruth mentioned Tamar. The women say, how should be like the house of Peretz that Tamar bore for Yehuda? And now the point, and unfortunately, I don't have enough time to go into this because the larger question is, which is a very interesting question, does the story of Judah and Tamar, this is interesting. I've never taught this before. Someone can think about it. I've taught Judah and Tamar many times. But does the story of Judah and Tamar, does it connect to the promise to Abraham in the covenant? I believe it actually does connect, but to demonstrate that would take some time. I haven't worked it all out, but I'm quite sure it's true. I think it can be worked out. But the point is that in, in, in the case of Yehuda and Tamar and the case of Ruth, which both are about what might say leveret marriage in, in, in the broad sense of leveret marriage. Uh, what is involved in both of those stories is somebody taking responsibility, but, and this is a response to uh, Rosie's point earlier. It's not clear that in either story, the man is, understands what it means to take responsibility. Certainly not in the case of Yehuda, that's for sure. But even in the case of Boaz, 
Because what Boaz says to Ruth, Ruth said to Boaz in chapter two, why are you being so kind to me? I'm a stranger. And it turns out that Boaz, oh, I know the whole story. You left your home, you left this, you, you came back with Naomi, her husband had died. Well, if you know all that, mister, why aren't you doing anything? But what he says to her is, Yishalem Hashem Paolech. God should reward you. Next verse, further down. God should give you a reward, right? Right. Yishalem Hashem, next part, next passage, passage number, that's it. Yishalem Hashem Paolech. God should reward you for your wonderful behavior. The, which God? The God under whose wings you have sought refuge. That's what she, that's what he says to her. God should bless you, my dear. That's chapter two. Chapter three, the harvest season is over. Naomi says to Ruth, do what I tell you to do. You go and dress up, she says in chapter three, and lie down next to this man, Boaz. He'll tell you what to do. That's chapter three, which is not a simple thing for a young woman to do. Highly inappropriate, obviously. And she lies down next to him, all kind of suggestive language. And Boaz in chapter three, verse number nine, says, Miat. Miat, who are you? That person. And this, Anochi Ruta I am, she says, Ruth, your servant. Spread your robe over your handmaid for you are the redeeming kinsman. And what did Boaz say to Ruth in chapter two? God should reward you. God should give you a reward. The God of Israel should pay you recompense. Under whose knafav, wings you, under whose wings, right? You have come. What does Ruth say to Boaz in chapter three? Let me, let me, let me, in my own language, say what she's saying. Boaz, you're, you're a great guy, very nice guy, a generous man. That's why I'm here. Because I know you're not the closest relative, but the other guy's away, he'll never do anything. You, you speak very nicely about God rewarding me. But let me remind you of something. God will do what God will do. It's your responsibility to reward, not God. Don't put it off on God, mister, with that, with that holy talk of yours. I don't want to hear it. About God spreading God's wings over me. No, you spread your wings over me. You are the redeemer. You're a big faker. You're a nice guy, but you are a first-class faker. It's your job, and you know it, too. And, of course, what's Boaz's answer? Because she, she sees the goodness in Boaz. Of course, this is a person that brings blessing at every turn. She's the anti-Moab. You're right, he says. You're 100% right. And there is somebody closer. But one way or the other, I'm going to take care of it. In the case of Judah and Tamar, of course, she ends up sleeping with Yehuda. He's not the closest relative. He's the second closest relative, right? His son is the closest relative. But he's forbidden his son from marrying a, a Tamar. So she goes after the second closest relative. It's one of the many, many connections between the story of Tamar and Yehuda and the story of Ruth. So what I would say the following to this information, that in the book of Breshid, you have a covenantal promise given to Abraham. That's the promise. And it works out over four generations. But the fact that there is a promise, we as human beings have to try to make the promise happen, have to make it come true. 
The one who makes it come true, really, it's strange, is Tamar. She's the one who teaches Yehuda how to build the family, how to build the bayit, how to build the inclusive structure, which is the fourth generation. Fourth generation shall return to the land. And the book of Ruth is playing on these two stories, which I think are related. One is Ruth is a, an Abraham type figure. Both she's an Abraham type figure in the positive, and she's an anti Amon Moab and Lot figure, which also makes her an Abraham figure. And then in addition, of course, throughout <laughs> the book is the story of Judah and Tamar. She's able to make it happen. And the parallel, of course, is clear. Kingship is a institution which is passed down from generation to generation. The patriarchy, the covenantal blessing is a blessing passed down from generation to generation. And it's striking that in both books, both in Breshit and in the book of Ruth, not only is it a woman actually, but it seems to be a foreign woman. Tamar is, who was Tamar? Her lineage is never given. It's not one, it's, she's Jew, she Jewish in any sense. It's the outsider who sees clearly how the blessing is to proceed and is willing to put herself on the line. Tamar is a Zona, she's not a Zona, she's a holy woman, but she's forced to play that role because the people that are supposed to do their job don't do it. And when that happens, it's always the same. Someone always picks up the tab. Someone's gotta pick up the tab. Book of Ruth is similar in that respect. She's both Abraham on one end and Tamar on the other. There's more to say about this. And actually in, in preparing for this year, uh, I've said a lot of this in the past, some new things, but it got me thinking about something which we didn't have a time to analyze and take time to what degree is the story of Judah and Tamar connected to the promise of Abraham in chapter 15? I mean, in terms of language, that's a very good question. Well, I'll stop at this point to take comments or questions. And I wish all of us a Chag Sameach. Yes, uh, comments or questions, yes. Aviva, yeah. Rabbi, um, you often, it's Sandra, hi. Um, thank you yeah. so much. Um, you often uh, taught that um, even when stories repeat or, um, or, or offer us foils or echo one another, that often it's a good exercise for us to um, look for the look at the differences between the stories to 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 help us better understand them. And it seems to me that one key difference um, when comparing Ruth uh, and Abraham is that Abraham is commanded, right. whereas Ruth whereas Ruth intuits. Right. So to me, when you said, um, uh, and I think it was a, an incredibly serious comment, but it was said so quickly that you said, "What? Why not Ruth? Why Ruth?" The question should be, why not Ruth? She's the greatest Jew. And everybody uh, obviously points to Abraham for myriad reasons. But this story, when you talk about foils and playing on and building on the characters that came before, um, uh, she came from Aver Hayardain. She came from the other side, the other side of everything, the other side of the family, the cursed, the accursed side, the the hybrid side that's cursed, but also protected. Um, but the key thing for me is that Abraham, yeah, chapter 12, Abraham's told to lechacha, told, really as clear as, as, as the Chumash can be, and Ruth intuits it. And sure. so uh, I would really rest my case right there and just really be so humble and, and just say, she, she repeats the humility when she says to Boaz, so why do you even recognize me? She doesn't even, I don't know that she even recognizes the recognition. It's just so enormously huge. And she does this 
by instinct. That's true. The truth is that Rivka also was that way. Rivka was mm-hmm. not commanded to leave her home. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, the servant says it's a sign from heaven, etc. No, she's led down no the path. Rebecca is great, but she's led down the path. This one, this, uh, Ruth takes that story. Abraham morphs into Rebecca, yeah, and Rebecca morphs not to come. into Ruth. Of course, there's yeah. the Ruth is, as I said, Ruth was in, discouraged from going. So yeah, she no one commanded her to do this. Yes. It's just mind-boggling. Yes. Aviva, what do you want to say? Um, that you've mentioned um, here and also when we studied um, earlier, when we were studying Genesis about uh, the importance of Abraham and Rebecca and Ruth willing to leave their home. But is that is that in itself the value or is it that they leave their home to join the Jewish people and our God? I mean, if it were... Um, Isaac or any any of the key figures who was willing to leave their home and join the Philistines, would that be commended? No, clearly. I mean, it's 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 willing to pay a price for some spiritual goal. I mean, in the case of Abraham, it's it's going to the land that God will show him. In the case of Ruth, in the case of uh, Rivka, Rivka intuits that it's God's will. In the case of Ruth, it's accompanying this um, elderly woman and helping her. It's a book about chesed, that's for sure. I would say something else, that in the case of Ruth and Rivka, and Avram, all three, it's about hospitality. And I think actually, thinking about hospitality, welcoming the stranger, uh, I would say the following, that this is a Shavuos theme as well, holiday of Shavuot. I think what may lie behind the idea of the welcoming the stranger to my home is a sense that it's not actually my home. It's a sense that, as the Torah says, and the, uh, talks about the Shemitah, the Ovil year, we are it's, it's God's land. The sense that, okay, you happen to live there now and God bless you. And to some degree, the Torah does recognize proprietary rights and rights to property. I'm not suggesting it doesn't, but in some deep sense, it's a sense that this idea that it's mine is counter to what the Chumash seems to say about the way we understand this world. Mm-hmm. And if you understand that, it happens to be mine at this point, but that actually, that's by dint of good fortune or God's grace or whatever, but you know, it could be very different. And the fact is, it could be me visiting someone else's place. You walk in the streets in New York and you see people sleeping in the street. And it's very important to remember that that could be us. Mm-hmm. Because by circumstance, 99%, we're born to a certain family, a certain way, etc. It's not necessarily that we're more virtuous. Things happen in this world. And it's very important to remember that the other person could be myself. And I think the idea of greeting the stranger is a recognition that in some sense, the fact that I'm here and the other person is a wanderer or a stranger is not because of my entitlements. We, we choose not to see it that way. I mean, it's an entitlement. It's an opportunity to, uh, to uh, do a mitzvah. That's true. But the idea that, that the land, and here we come to a very deep point, which I'll have to conclude in terms of Shavuot in general. The holiday of Shavuot, we say in our davening, but the Torah actually never identifies Shavuot as the time of giving the Torah. You could say that, you could figure it out on the calendar. 
But nowhere does it ever say, actually any place, that there's a holiday to commemorate the Torah. The closest we get is the end of Sefer Devarim Hakel. Every seven years on the holiday of Sukkot, you read the, you read the Torah. But in the Tchumish, Shavuot is the holiday of, 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 of possessing the land. That's what the Torah speaks about, the day of Bikurim. And the idea of counting the seven weeks and then celebrating Shavuot is parallel in the Chumash to counting seven years, seven times seven, and then seven, and then having the Jubilee year. And the Jubilee year, the lands all, all revert to their original owners because God says it's not your land. And to the degree that we think it's not ours, the Chumash says it is yours. The land is yours, Achuzah. But only if you understand that in some profound sense, it's not yours. And that's what the holiday of Shavuot is actually about. And that I think it ties in very nicely to the idea of hospitality to the stranger, coming to my place. Well, it happens to be my place. And I'm very grateful for that. But in some profound sense, it's not our place. We are strangers and sojourners in God's world. Mm. And that I think is very central to the idea of hospitality, to the book of Ruth, and the holiday of Shavuot in the plain meaning of the Torah. I will stop at this point. It's a great book. I mean, there's no, I mean, it's an, an uplifting kind of book and there's much more here. Uh, anyway, I wish you all a Chag Sameach and there'll be many other opportunities, hopefully to study together. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Rabbi Silver, as always, for a wonderful class and to everyone here for your participation. We do have two more programs tomorrow. You can learn about them and sign up on our website. I put the link in the chat. And if you aren't able to join us for those opportunities, then we wish you Hag Sameach and we hope to see you very soon after the holiday for more learning. Be well. Thank you. Hag Sameach. Thank you so much. Thank you. Just brilliant.